First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report with kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So I'd like you to join me on a short journey back in history. The year is 1986. I was a seventh grader at North Park Junior High School in Lockport, New York. That year was significant for me because it was the first time I'd ever had a crush on a girl. Now, in 1986, the way that you communicated your affections was a bit different than in the year 2023. See, in 1986, we had the modern technology of a piece of paper and a pen. So I wrote a note that probably looked something like this. Then the task was to get that note into the hands of the one who had captured my affection. And so there was a very specific delivery system for such a note that looks something like this. <laughs> oh, some of you know, like if you're, if you're under the age of 35, you're getting a history lesson right now. Okay. So this perfectly folded paper football would then be inserted into the vent of the locker, hoping that when that young lady named Lisa would open the door, that note would fall into glory. Oh, there was the risk of being rejected, of course. She didn't. She checked yes. And that began a letter-writing campaign of sorts, locker to locker, back and forth, until we worked up the courage to actually speak to one another. 
See, see, writing a letter by hand is different than firing off an email or a text or a comment. It, it requires a bit more thought. It's slower. Mistakes are harder to correct than typing something on a computer. The New Testament is made up largely of letters. Letters that were expensive to create because of limited access to papyrus and and quill. And so there was care taken when every one of those letters was written. Now, one such letter is what we now refer to as the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians is one of the many letters written by the Apostle Paul that was, yes, specific to a people, a time, a context, and a place. But that letter transcends time and eternity and becomes a communication to us, the ones that have captured the affection of God. See, First Thessalonians was written to a church that was flourishing in a city called Thessalonica. It was written about 50 years after the crucifixion of Christ, and there was something very unique happening in this church. Many of the churches started by the Apostle Paul were made up largely of Jewish people who had converted to Christianity. But the church at Thessalonica was different because that church was largely made up of of Gentiles turning to Christ, to Christianity. And so the leaders of that church did not know what to do. The question was, do these Gentiles first have to become Jewish and follow the Jewish law and then become Christians? It was a big deal back then. So big, in fact, that a council was held called the Jerusalem Council. It's recorded in the book of Acts chapter 17. And the question was, do these Christians at the Thessalonian church need to follow the Jewish laws and then become Christians? And the answer was a resounding no. And so the apostle Paul, as he pens this letter, one of the themes is the Apostle Paul celebrating a flourishing church. Which then begs the question, what does it mean to flourish? Because I suppose if we were to take a poll, most of us would want to define our lives as ones that are flourishing. Flourishing is a robust, dense word, but can also mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And I want my life to flourish. I want my children to flourish. I want my grandchildren to flourish. And we all have definitions as to what that word means. If you own a business, you want your business to flourish. You want your career to flourish. If you're a homeowner, you want your lawn to flourish, which mine is not right now. And I'm, I'm at war right now with, that's a different story. Flourishing is so important, in fact, that Harvard University has begun a study called the Human Flourishing Program in which they're studying and measuring the characteristics and components of what it means to flourish as a human being. They currently have six characteristics. The first is happiness. We all want to experience happiness. The second is health, both physical and mental health. We want to have good health. 
The third is living with meaning and purpose. We all want that. Uh, The fourth is character, having a sense of integrity in our life. The fifth is stability in relationships, supportive relationships, encouraging relationships. And the sixth is stability in our financial and material possessions. All those things are good. All those things are something we want. But let me shift the angle on the question and ask, what then does it mean to flourish as a church? I mean, is a a church that's growing numerically a church that's flourishing? Maybe. But there are lots of things that grow that aren't healthy. Cancer can grow rapidly and large, but none of us would say it's healthy. Is a church that's flourishing one that has lots of things going on, lots of ministries, lots of activities? Maybe, but busyness does not necessarily mean flourishing. So if we turn back to the letter to the Thessalonian church, a church that the Apostle Paul would define as flourishing, what then is his measurement? Well, in this letter, chapter 1, he uses three words to describe what it means to be a flourishing church. It's a triad of words that he uses throughout his epistles in different ways and in different orders, but they're always there. Faith, hope, and love. They're scattered through all of his letters. The most famous is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, the the most often read passage at weddings. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 ends by saying this, there are three things that remain. Three things that are eternal, three things that last forever, ever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. These things surpass time. Faith, hope, and love, the the trinity of the Christian virtues, are Paul's definition attached to this flourishing church. See, if we go back to the text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, this is what the Apostle Paul is writing. He says, we thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this letter begins like many of his letters with the apostle saying, we are praying for you. And there's comfort in that, right? We want to know that there are others that are praying for us. Which is why each week we mention that in the seat back in front of you, there is a connection card. If you fill it out and put your prayers on the back, I can promise you and assure you that each week those cards are distributed and they are prayed over by our pastors. It's good to know someone is sitting with you in the midst of your deepest need. The city of Thessalonica was a very religious community. They were Greeks, and therefore, they worshipped the pantheon of, of Greek gods. It was a very prayerful place. Prayers and offerings offered to Zeus and those that made up the Greek god uh, pantheon. And so, so, so each day, prayers were offered in Thessalonica to Greek gods, and they were often based on self-interest, which were often arguments with deities, explaining to the deity what one needed, and what one was willing to do to get what one needed, 
And because I was willing to do this, the deity was then obligated to give me what I need. And so a prayer might be offered to Zeus. Zeus, if I pray three times a day, offer a sacrifice to you, then I need you to do this. I need my crops to flourish. It was all about what the gods could do for me and what I was willing to do in exchange for that favor. Let's see, the Christian prayers are different, and we know this because they're recorded in the New Testament. And what we know about the Christian prayers is that first they began with gratitude. There was always a a thanksgiving offered to God. And then petitions were offered, but the petitions were offered often on behalf of another, not on behalf of self. So whereas the Greeks prayed for themselves in a very selfish and argumentative way, the Christians offered gratitude to God and prayed for others. And so I suppose that now begs the question, when I offer my prayers to God, am I more like the Greeks? Or am I more like the ancient Christians offering my gratitude to God and petition on behalf of others? See, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing and saying, we are praying for you and we want you to flourish. And the fruit of that flourishing is faith, hope, and love. So first, he he commends them for their act of faith, your work produced by faith, which is always an interesting conversation in the Christian community because there is a debate on the place of faith and the place of good deeds and works. Do my works grant me favor with God? Do I have to earn my salvation? Do I have to do things for God to like me? And the answer is a resounding no, because the scriptures are very clear that it's faith in Christ. It's through grace. However, the natural result or product of our faith is good work in Jesus' name which in the New Testament most often refers to charity to the poor, visitation and care for the sick, hospitality to the stranger, comfort to the despondent, peace extended to the downtrodden. Not doing these things because I have to or I'm required to, doing these things because I can't help but not do them because of the faith I have in Christ. My wife and I were married in 1997. We had our college graduation, and the next month we were married. However, I was three credits short from actually earning my degree, so I had to go back after our wedding and complete one summer semester. So my wife and I moved into a very small apartment, very cheap apartment, because we lived, we we worked on campus, I worked on the grounds crew, she worked in hospitality, which was a nice way of saying I mowed the lawn and she washed laundry for the dorms. And we made $3.75 an hour. We were broke. I mean, we were poor. We weren't even poor. We were po. We couldn't afford the second O or the R. We had nothing. The only money we had to our name was $500 we put in our savings account that was left over from the gifts we were given at our wedding. One afternoon while I was mowing the lawn, I was with a friend of mine and co-worker named Rich, who was also a student at the college. Rich was a bit older than me. He was married and had a couple of children. He lived in campus housing, and he came up to me, and we were having a discussion, and he told me that he had the opportunity to move because him and his wife had qualified for government housing, a government-subsidized townhouse. 
which would have been cheaper than where he was currently living, which would have helped his family. He said, but there was a challenge. They required a down payment that they did not have. And the down payment was exactly $500. Huh. So I went home that evening, talked to my wife, and I said, is there a little bit that we can do to help these guys? The operating word being little bit. And she said, oh yeah, we should just give it to them, all of it. My wife clearly has more faith than I. So I withdrew $500, every penny that we had to our name, put it in an envelope. The next day I walked over to Rich, didn't say a word, just handed it to him and walked away. And as I looked back out of the corner of my eye, I saw him remove his glasses and wipe tears from his eyes because God had answered his prayer. And what's ironic, often you're the answer to someone else's prayer and you may not even know it. When I did that, I received no brownie points in heaven. I got no gold stars that did not uh, help me get into heaven. I didn't tell anybody about it until I told you, essentially. I, it was just something that we did, not because we had to, but because we could not help it. It was the natural byproduct of our faith. Works do not produce faith. Faith produces good work. I don't work for my faith. I work from my faith. So, so, so the author of the book of Hebrews defines faith this way. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That, that word confidence could be and probably should be translated as trust. Now we trust in what we hope for. I trust in the one whom I know holds the future. And because I trust, because I have faith in one whom I know who holds the future, it was really not a big deal for me to withdraw $500 and hand it to someone who had a need. And I can promise you, there have been lean years in my life, but I've never been without because I trust the one who holds my future in his hands. So the mark of a flourishing church is one that has active faith. But it's also a church that's hardworking in love. The words the Apostle Paul uses are labor prompted by love. The word labor here means any self-sacrificing act that we engage in towards others, both within our faith community and outside our faith community. Which is challenging for me and maybe challenging for you because I am naturally inclined towards conditional love. I am naturally inclined to love those that love me. I'm naturally inclined to love those that I like. I am naturally inclined to love those that do things for me. And when someone disagrees with me, or holds a different set of values than me, or says something awful about me, my natural inclination is not love. We currently live in a season that at times can be hostile, morally, culturally, and politically. John Ortberg once wrote that the first casualty of culture wars is not truth, but love. So what do we do then as followers of Christ, readers of the Bible, disciples of Jesus, what do we do then with those that 
hold opinions that are vastly different than ours. What do we do when there are those whose values clash in profound ways with consequences with our own values? What do we do? I would also argue that I'm naturally inclined towards infatuation rather than I am biblical love. And we get infatuated with all kinds of things. When I was in my early 20s, I, I self-admittedly could be such a jerk, particularly in the arena of romance. Because this is what would happen to me. I would become infatuated with someone until I got bored, and I'd break their heart. Then I'd become infatuated with someone else, get bored, break their heart. Then I'd become infatuated with someone else, get bored, and break their heart. And there was this cycle of non-commitment the moment the infatuation wore off. And so I wonder, is it impossible then, is it possible then to become infatuated with God? Oh, we love it when, when our prayers are being answered. We love it when we come to church and we feel something. But what about those seasons that feel dry, mundane? What about those seasons in which it seems my prayers are not piercing heaven? When they seemingly go unanswered, what then? See, the word love, as used in the Bible, is a verb. And it always describes an action. It does not reference a feeling. Infatuation is a feeling. Love is much more robust, much more holistic. When I think about biblical love, of course I think about God, but if I had to attribute love to to a person, I think of my parents. I, I was a lot when I was a kid. Even as a baby. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. As a baby, I was very colicky. I would throw up every meal, and it was very stressful for my parents. But I was even worse as a teenager. I treated my parents awful. I said horrible things to them in my teenage angst. They still refer to those years as the dark years. But through all of it, my parents displayed for me nothing but unconditional love. And they loved me even when I certainly didn't deserve it. One of the values of our church is love intentionally. That word intentionally is important because it's easy to love those that I like. But what about the other? There is an intentionality to it. See, one of the, one of the marks of a flourishing church is hardworking love. And the third is, is patient, enduring hope. Endurance inspired by hope in Jesus, remaining steadfast in all things. Because a a harmful assumption that it's easy to have is that everything should be instant, that everything should be done quickly. I wonder by an honest show of hands how many of us are impatient. Oh, come on, there's a lot more than that. I'm very impatient. And because I'm impatient, when I experience resistance, it is very easy to give up. When I experience 
a challenge. I want to know what can I do to fix this right now? If you have relational turmoil with your marriage, with kids, whatever. Like you want to know, what can I do right now to fix this immediately? I've had hundreds and hundreds of conversations with individuals in my office that say to me something like this, Mike, Mike, what do I need to do to fix this? What is the magic pill that will make it all different? And I say the same answer every time. There isn't one. Most things that are worth fixing take time. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who was no friend to religion at all, did say something profound once. He wrote, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. Thereby results and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. What makes life worth living is the endurance, the perseverance, the tenacity, the grit, the resilience. Because if we just pause and notice, most of our life is lived in the normal and the ordinary. Oh yes, there are exciting things that happen. There are profound things that happen. But most of life is lived in the normal and in the ordinary. And I'm okay with normal and ordinary. But see, the trouble with normal and ordinary, to flourish in the normal and ordinary, it is often a practice in resilience, in endurance, in fixing our hope on something with substance. For years, I was an an avid runner. I had occasionally run a race. And what you know, if you're an avid runner, is there is a phenomenon that happens usually about halfway through your run, called hitting the wall. And when you hit the wall, it is as psychological as much as it is physical. There are articles written in Runner's World about facing the wall and what to do. And what every runner knows is as you train, you train yourself to face and run through the wall. See, when I, when I came to faith, it was exciting. It was new. It, it was almost as if I was on vacation experiencing an exotic location for the first time. My eyes were open to all these possibilities. I wonder, have you ever gone on vacation someplace and it was magical? Magical. The palm trees and the beach or Mickey Mouse or however you describe magical. But then you went back again to the same place, again to the same place, again to the same place. And some of the magic kind of wore off because it became a bit ordinary because you've been there so many times. I wonder if it's possible to lose some of the magic in our relationship with God because it becomes ordinary, mundane, predictable. Because the truth is, life is long. Much like a long-distance run, you'll eventually hit a wall. And what is needed to push through the wall is hope, is endurance, resilience. And part of that resilience 
comes from that which you fix your gaze upon. You realize what you spend time gazing upon is what you become. Each quarter I get this piece of mail. It is my investment statement for the quarter. (laughs) I don't even open it anymore. It's too discouraging. I just take it and put it in a file. I don't even open the envelope because I know there'll be a loss again. See, I could very easily open that thing and fix my gaze on that number and become so infatuated with that number. Each day, I conclude the day by reading the news. I don't watch it because I can't handle it. Uh, but I do read it I'm on my phone. And I read all the major outlets because I, just, I like diverse perspective. So I read Apple News and I read Fox News and I read CNN and I read them all. I do. Just glance through them, capture the headlines because I want to know what's going on. But see, the trouble is if I fix my gaze on any of those things, oh, it would do something to me. I know it would. Which is why I glance at it and put it away. Because my hope isn't in any of those things. Yeah, yeah we could all say, yeah, there, the world needs, uh, yeah, yeah, we work for a better world. But my hope isn't in any of those things. Because see, hope isn't a dream or a wish. See, hope is fixing my gaze on Jesus, who is my anchor. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That's where my gaze is focused. That's where my security comes from. So see, a flourishing church is one with active faith, <clears throat> hardworking love, and patient, enduring hope. And the Apostle Paul goes on to write, and because of that, Thessalonians, you're worth imitating. You are a role model. Back to verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith has become known everywhere. That church became a model of flourishing. Are are we a model worth emulating? Because we all are inspired by someone and we inspire others. So who inspires you? Who do you imitate? We live in a world right now in which there were our jobs and vocations that did not exist while I was growing up. One of those vocations is known by many names, but the most common is social media influencer. Like you can make a lot of money influencing others on social media. Social media influencers are basically those that create digital content. They have a large following and so businesses pay and outlets pay for their influence. And so what happens is, is many of them are influential, which is why they're an influencer. And so we, we can attach to them because they get me. They understand me. Which actually forms what psychologists call a parasocial relationship, which is one-sided, in which one party extends energy, emotion, and interest while the other person is blissfully ignorant of your existence. So who inspires us. 
What do we gaze upon? Who do we find our hope in? Because I, I don't contribute to a flourishing and floundering church, and you don't contribute to a flourishing and floundering church. We, we make a church that flourishes or flounders. I was listening to a guy give a, give a talk just this week, and he said something profound, and then he moved on. And I want to say, go, go, go back, go back, well, say that again. And this is what he said talking about the church. As the Christian church, I mean, we are in our world and we inhale our world, but we exhale hope. And that's worth your money right there. I mean, we, we inhale the world and we exhale hope, we exhale faith, we exhale love. Because if we don't, if we simply inhale the world and then exhale anger and reactivity and overinflated opinions and hates. We're just like everyone else. Which then asks the question, when do I actually take Jesus seriously? You know the guy who said, turn the other cheek. Love your neighbor as yourself. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the persecuted. When do I actually take Jesus seriously and not anecdotally? Because this matters. It matters. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. Maybe we should make our faith a bit more simple. We, we can complicate religion. Oh, we're so good at complicating religion. I think it was Albert Einstein who said, if you can't explain something, something simply, you do not understand it. And so, this letter helps us Keep it simple. Take all our theology, all our doctrine, all that we believe. The Apostle Paul wraps them into three words. Faith, hope, and love. And so this morning, God, we cling to these three words. Words that form the ethos and the essence of what we believe. I want to be a part of a flourishing church. So would you give us an act of faith? And from that act of faith, would good work just flow naturally? Help us to do the hard work of love. That would be an intentional action, not just an emotional feeling. And give us patient, enduring hope, even when things are just kind of normal. Our hope is in you. God, would you make this church flourish? Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Mike. Holy forever, Lord, you are. And so, church, I pray for you now that you would keep your eyes on Jesus this week that you would be reminded of his goodness and his holiness. And we just give you this time now, Lord, and so grateful for today. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless. We'll see you soon. Enjoy the beautiful weekend.